Well, thanks, George and Shelley and Lauren, for leading us in song today and preparing our hearts for the preaching of God's Word. It's great to be back after three weeks of holidays, and, and kind of this week I realized I, I think I needed the rest. It was kind of a, a certain tasks were a lot easier than they were about four weeks ago when I did the exact same thing, and so I'm feeling great, and it's good to be back. We're back in Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 12, verses 15 to 22. Matthew 12, 15 to 22. And this is a passage that really shows us the character and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to begin by reading our passage this morning, but I want to start in verse 14. So Matthew 12, starting in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles." He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now again, this text shows us the character and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see how he responds to his enemies We see how he responds to those who conspire against him to destroy him. Really, they're they're plotting to put him to death. We see in this passage his ministry to the sick again. We see what the Old Testament prophesied about him. And we see that he fulfilled those things so that he is who and what Isaiah prophesied that he would be. We see that Jesus is beloved by the Father, that he is the chosen servant, that that Yahweh is well pleased with him, that he, Jesus, is filled with the Spirit, that he proclaims justice to the Gentiles, that he um, really, by proclaiming justice to the Gentiles, he really brings justice. He's the one in whom justice and righteousness will go forth and will be accomplished. And the Gentiles, it says, will hope in his name. Jesus will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoldering wick. And these show us how Jesus responds to people, to weak and helpless and hurting people. And so our text today is going to give us insight into Jesus Christ, and it should help us to get to know him better. Now, this text is here. These verses are here really for a number of reasons in Matthew. It shows us how Jesus responds to hostility uh, he's beginning to face more and more hostility. These two last chapters are showing the, the enmity that's arising against Jesus, and this shows us how he responds to that. This text shows us and explains why Jesus begins to tell people not to make him known. This text introduces the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. And by the end of the chapter 12, we're going to see Jesus accusing the Pharisees of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so this text kind of sets the stage for that by reminding us that the Lord put his spirit on Jesus Christ. And another thing that this text does is it brings to focus this mission to the Gentiles. And there's been kind of hints of this sprinkled throughout this gospel. And by the end of the gospel, uh, Jesus is going to say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, which is quoted in our text, is really mentioned here and put here because twice it mentions the Gentiles or the nations. And so Matthew is preparing us bit by bit for the Great Commission so that when it comes, it won't be too much of a surprise for us. Again, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says this, Jesus came and said to them, that is to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
But most of all, this text is here because it reveals Jesus Christ. This is the longest quote in Matthew of the Old Testament, and it seems to be here to really show us our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is so important for us then because knowing Jesus is everything. Our eternal destiny depends on knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the object of saving faith. We believe him, we trust him, and if we don't know him, how can we trust him? We have to know Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And as we think about this, kind of by way of introduction, I want you to turn to a a passage I go to quite often, but I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Thinking about the importance of knowing Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, really important passage. In verses 3 to 6, Paul really shows us the difference between believers and unbelievers. And the difference is that the one, the unbeliever, is blinded to the glory of Christ. Whereas the believer has been enlightened. The the believer, God has turned the light on for them. So that they could see the glory of Christ. And so God opened our hearts to see Jesus for who he truly is. That's saving faith. And so look at 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3. And and Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, notice the small g there, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now the two parts that I I want us to see this morning is at the end of verse 4 again, where Paul says, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then again, at the end of verse six, almost exactly parallel, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel reveals the glory of Christ. And Christ is the image of God, and so Christ reveals the glory of God. And salvation is seeing that glory and responding by living for Jesus' sake, devoting our lives to serve him by serving others, and receiving Christ as Lord, as Paul says in verse 5, for we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And so in order to come to Christ, we need to see him for who he is. We need to see his greatness. We need to see his glory. And salvation involves a recognition of the worth of Jesus Christ. It's We see his value in salvation and we acknowledge his worth and we say he is worth living for whatever the cost he is worth even dying for no matter what the cost because he is that good and that glorious and that great and in verse six this is called knowledge it's a knowledge that comes from or that comes into a new heart God shown in our heart to give us this knowledge and it's also what what, what we would call an experiential knowledge It's like when David says in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Salvation is a knowledge of delight, delight in Jesus Christ who shows us the glory of God. It's a delight in Christ. It's a delight in God. And so salvation is really knowing Jesus Christ who is the image of God. And knowing Jesus is knowing God because Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And so Jesus shows us the Father, and through Jesus, we come to know the Father. And that's why Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says that He, and it's speaking about the Son, Jesus Christ there, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the image of God, the exact imprint of his nature in human flesh. And so we see the glory of God, the greatness and the goodness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if we want to know the Father, we need to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, we can't even come to know the Father unless we come to Him through His Son. And that's what Jesus said in John fourteen six. Jesus said to Thomas there, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then He says to Thomas again, If you had known me, You would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so knowing Jesus is knowing God. Now, there's really so much more that we could say about this, but the point that I'm trying to make in the introduction here is that it is vital for us to know Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3.8, Paul says just something great about knowing Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Then he says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And in John 17 verse 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. He's talking to the Father here. He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so eternal life is knowing Christ and knowing God. And again, we're talking here about a knowledge of delight, not just a mere intellectual knowledge about things about God and things about Christ, but a knowledge that causes us to delight in Christ and delight in God and moves us to live our lives for his glory And for his sake. This is a knowledge of delight that counts other things, even all things, like Paul says, they're all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so what we want to do today is we want to look at Christ and see him in our text. We want to see what he's like. We want to see who he is. We want to see what he does. And so if you go back to Matthew chapter 12, We're going to divide the text really very simply this morning. We're going to see there's a the first three verses there, 15, 16, 17, are what Matthew says about Jesus and what he did. And then in verses 18 to 21, we see what Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. And we're going to call the first one the ministry of Jesus in verses 12 to 17. And then secondly, we're going to see the prophecy of Jesus in verses 18 to 21, And that's really a quotation from Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. And when we get to the prophecy about Jesus in verses 18 to 21, we're going to break that up and we're going to see four characteristics of Jesus Christ. And I'll give you those later on when we get there. So I I, I really hope our time today in in the Word gives us a deeper understanding of Christ, who He is, and, and really knowing Him then also moves us to love Him and delight in Him This really should reveal Jesus to us so that we come to know him as he is. And that knowledge should delight our hearts. And so let's see then first the ministry of Jesus in verses 15 to 17. The ministry of Jesus. Now remember where we were in in chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Jesus healed a man with a withered hand and he did that on the Sabbath. He had declared himself before that in in the the first verses of chapter 12. He declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he proved that he is Lord of the Sabbath by healing that man with the withered hand in verses 9 to 14. And he said it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, something which the Pharisees would have disagreed with. And that very day, the Pharisees went out and, and likely they stormed out of the synagogue service that morning. And they stormed out of the synagogue service and they conspired in verse 14 how to destroy Jesus. They were plotting and conspiring his death. They were planning how to put him to death. And so the question then arises as we see this opposition against Jesus, how would one as mighty as Jesus, remember we've seen all of his power and all of his might, how would one as mighty as Jesus respond to those who are his enemies? 
You know, if he could heal, surely he could destroy. If he casts out demons with a word, he commands the winds and the waves. What could he do to those who rejected him and plotted to kill him? And really the answer is that he could do whatever he wanted, right? He could do to them whatever he wanted. He had the power. But Jesus, although he's the Messiah, he is not, at least at this point, he's not going to fight. And he doesn't force himself or he doesn't force his claim to the throne of David on anyone. And so he is the king, but he's a king who holds his peace. And he invites whosoever will to come to him, but he doesn't quarrel with those who will not come. And instead of escalating the conflict, in this case, he withdraws. And this is a pattern that we're going to see kind of continually from here. When opposition arises against Jesus, he's going to leave that place and begin ministry somewhere else. And this is going to continue until his hour has come. The hour of his death, the time appointed by the Father. And then in Jerusalem, he's going to lay down his life for sinners. Then he's going to stand his ground, but still, he doesn't fight. He doesn't quarrel. He doesn't resist his enemies. He's going to give up his life. And so when the time comes, he's no longer going to withdraw, but still, he doesn't do what he could have done. He doesn't use his power to destroy his enemies. Instead, he uses his power to lay down his life to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And so Jesus withdraws, and and really this is exactly what he taught his disciples to do. Look back at Matthew 10 and verse 14. Matthew 10, 14, in this message of missions where Jesus sends off the twelve He says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet or shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And then again in verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Now, Jesus hasn't been persecuted yet, but they're planning on how to persecute him, and so he withdraws. But somehow, as, as they're kind of making this plan, what we don't know if this is naturally or supernaturally, but Jesus becomes aware of their plot, and he became aware, and then he withdrew. And we don't even know exactly where he withdrew to, likely to another city in Galilee, but it, Matthew doesn't tell us that. But he didn't completely hide. He withdrew, but people knew where he went. And it says in verse 15, if you're looking there, uh, and many followed him and he healed them all. Many followed him and he healed them all. He healed all of them. Matthew kind of continues to hold forth for us this remarkable healing ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was no sickness that he could not heal. There was nothing that he couldn't deal with. All of those who came to him, he healed. But now we see a new emphasis and and one that we're going to see more and more in verse 16. And he ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus healed them all. But he warned them, and that's what that word means there. He warned them, he ordered them not to publicly make it known. You see, Jesus at this point now begins to not want the publicity. And so in the ESV, he ordered them, or the New American Standard, Legacy Standard says he warned them. And that word there, warned or ordered, in verse 16, it's really a strong word. It means to rebuke, to reprove. That same word is used in Matthew 8.26 when Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. Or it's used in Matthew 17, verse 18, where Jesus rebuked a demon, and that's the same word there in that text. And so Jesus strongly warned people not to make him known. Now we've seen this just a little bit already, where if you go back to Matthew 8 and look at verse 3, it says there, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. 
And again, we see this secrecy in Matthew 9, 29 to 31, where he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them. Now that's a different word there, but same idea. Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went and spread his fame throughout all that district. And so this note of secrecy that's kind of beginning is really rising as we go through the book of Matthew. Jesus doesn't want the publicity. He, you know, and this is really unusual because usually if somebody is a Messiah figure, they want everyone to know about them. They want everyone to know what they have done. And so secrecy is unusual for someone who claims to be the Messiah. Typically, they'd want the biggest following possible. And really, even Jesus' family thought that this was strange. And, and, and why don't you turn? Let's go to John. Let's just turn there. Go to John chapter 7, and we kind of see this same thing again. If I get you to turn somewhere, it kind of slows, slows me down, slows you guys down a little bit. So kind of regroup a bit here. John 7, verse 3. His brother said to him, and that is to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5 explains, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And so Jesus has this note of secrecy. It's not his time. His hour hasn't come. And so he's not ready to make himself so publicly known because he's, he's doing this according to God's will so that he dies on the exact right day, on the day of Passover, to lay down his life for our sins. And our text, in our text, back to Matthew chapter 12, in our text we really see the reason why Jesus didn't want the publicity not only had his time not, not yet come, but also this was, according to Matthew, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And I, I just read Matthew twelve seventeen. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so Jesus kind of ordered this secrecy. He warned them to kind of keep quiet about his healing in order to fulfill this prophecy about him from Isaiah. And we're going to look at that prophecy in just one minute, but I just want to kind of touch on two things here that we see in verse 17. This is really actually an important verse as we think about Scripture. Matthew quotes Isaiah 42. Now, some scholars, and I don't even know if, if you would be aware of this, but some scholars think that there's two different Isaiahs, and sometimes even they they postulate that there were three Isaiahs. One wrote Isaiah 1 to 39, another around the time that when Isaiah was written, um, which was like 681 to, you know, 667 BC, somewhere around there, quite early. Second Isaiah, they say, was written between 500 and, and 547 and 539 BC, so much later. And, and the reason they say that is because they don't believe Isaiah could have prophesied all the things that he prophesied before they happened. And then some even say that there was a third Isaiah written a hundred years later in about 400 to 430 BC, 458 to 430. And, and they, so they would say Isaiah 1 to 39 is first Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 66 or Isaiah 40 to 56, second Isaiah, and then third Isaiah is Isaiah 56 to 66. And, but I just want to point out here that Jesus quotes from what would technically be, according to these scholars, second Isaiah, but he just calls him Isaiah. And so Jesus and Matthew and the apostles know nothing of the sort. The prophet Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 66, in about, about 600, 681 B.C. So that's kind of the first thing. And, and Jesus quoting from the book of Isaiah shows us that. And then second, note the wording there. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, the word there by is literally through the prophet Isaiah. And so a word was spoken through the prophet. And if we ask then, well, whose word was it? And the, the thing that was spoken through Isaiah is ultimately, most ultimately, God's word. 
God spoke through Isaiah. And that's how it works with all prophets. God speaks through the prophets. Another similar fulfillment formula that we see is in in Matthew 1.22. And so turn back to that one. Matthew 1.22. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And again, that should be translated more, more literally through the prophet. What the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And then he goes to quote Isaiah chapter 9. And so the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Prophecy is God speaking through a chosen prophet. And when God speaks, he always speaks the truth. And it will come to pass exactly as he says. And so that's why we trust our Bibles. Because we know that our Bibles aren't Matthew's word. It's not John's word. It's not Isaiah's word. It's God's word spoken through those men that were specially chosen And we can trust our Bible because prophecy is the word of God. When somebody prophesies, they're speaking the word of God and God ensures, God oversees the whole process so that what is spoken is ultimately his word. And that's also why we need to preach the word and study the word because when we study our Bibles, when the the word of God is preached, we are hearing from God and not just from the men who wrote this book. And so just kind of a little aside on prophecy and the word of God. Uh, when, when this is God's word, it really demands that we preach it and study it and go through it carefully because everything that God says is important. And so that was number one. Now number two, the prophecy of Jesus. And we're going to see what Isaiah said in verses 18 to 21. And, and I want to break this into four characteristics of Jesus Christ. Four characteristics of Jesus Christ. Because the servant here, my servant, is actually speaking about Jesus Christ as Matthew tells us. Verses 18 to 21 are a quotation from Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. And in a few places, Matthew's translation is slightly different than the Hebrew or slightly different than the Greek translation that called the Septuagint or really any other known version. But the sense of the text really isn't changed at all. And so Matthew kind of loosely quotes, or we're not exactly sure what he does, but, but the, the sense is very much the same from Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. And the first characteristic of Jesus Christ, I called this the greatness of Jesus Christ In verse 18, the greatness of Jesus Christ. Yahweh points out the greatness of his servant with the words, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. And I called this message, Behold Yahweh's servant. And so let's behold Christ here. And he's described, first of all, as Yahweh's servant. And in Isaiah 53, we hear about this same servant, Isaiah 42 and, and 51 and 53, and I, th- I think another, a few other places, maybe 49, all speak about Yahweh's servant. And Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so he is Yahweh's servant. He's come to do the Lord's will. The servant is the servant of Yahweh. He is the ultimate servant of Yahweh who came to accomplish Yahweh's will. And that will was for the servant to be crushed, to bear our iniquities as a sacrifice for our sins. Now in our verses, Isaiah 42, the focus is not so much on the sacrifice for sin as Isaiah 53 is, but it's more on his ministry up to that point, up to the point of his death. And so I've, Isaiah 42 focuses on the ministry of Christ leading up to his death. And the first thing that we learn is that this servant of Yahweh was chosen. He is his chosen servant. And so Jesus is the ultimate chosen one. He's chosen for the greatest task of all time to reconcile sinful men to God. He's chosen to undo all the damage done by Adam's sin and restore creation to its rightful place under God's authority. He's chosen to create a new humanity in himself, to be the head of a new people, the church, and to be the savior of all people through all time. This is what Jesus Christ was chosen for. 
And Yahweh, who will not give his glory to another, has chosen his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the one through whom the Lord glorifies himself. Jesus is chosen then to be the foundation of all of God's purposes and plans. Yahweh has chosen his servant and he has bestowed on him the name above all names. And so that, so he is this chosen one. And not only is he chosen, but look at the text again. Verse 18, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And so Jesus is not only God's chosen, but he's also God's beloved. He is literally the loved one, the one who is loved. Yahweh is delighted in him. He is well pleased in Jesus Christ, his servant. He says, my soul is well pleased, which really means I myself am well pleased. All of Yahweh, all of who God is, looks down on his son and is pleased with Jesus Christ. Now, we already saw this alluded to at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew three sixteen and 17 says this, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we're going to hear this voice again at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was he was still speaking, and that's Peter there speaking, when when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so what a contrast we see then between Yahweh's view of Jesus And the view of the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they can't stand Jesus. They want to kill him. They want to destroy him. But the father delights in him. And that shows us the greatness of Jesus Christ, that the father would delight in him. Because we know that the father is perfect. And we know that the father delights in goodness and holiness and truth. And the father does not delight in wickedness or unrighteousness. And from this, we can see the greatness of Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom the father is well pleased. And he must therefore be, as we saw in Hebrews 3, 1 verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds all things by the word of his power. Because otherwise, God would not delight in him the way that he does. If God delights in Christ then, and if God is well pleased with him, then that means that we should be as well. You see, godliness requires us to love Christ. If we're going to be like God, then we too must be lovers of Christ. We must worship Jesus Christ and honor him even as we honor God. And so if God delights in Christ, we should delight in Christ as well. And if God delights in Christ, here's another kind of point of application for us. If God delights in Christ, then he also delights in us when we are clothed with Christ in our justification, right? When we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we are justified, which means that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us and God counts us as having Christ's righteousness because we are in Christ. We are united to him. And so when God looks at us, he sees Christ who he delights in. And that's how we can come to know and be reconciled to God is through this justification. And what a blessing it is for us to know that God delights in us for Jesus' sake. And so that shows us there the greatness of Christ. He is chosen by the Father, beloved by the Father. The Father is well pleased with him. And secondly, now we see the mission of Jesus Christ. In the second part of verse 18, it says, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This servant had a mission. He had a, a purpose. He had a will to fulfill. And his, and for that, he would need the spirit. He would need the Holy Spirit. And Yahweh is going to put his spirit on him, which is to say that he is going to be anointed. Christ is going to be anointed with the spirit. Now, Matthew's already pointed us to a similar text in Isaiah 61. 
And, it, and, and let's just, if, if you want, let's go there as well. Turn to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 61. In this text, really, the Son is speaking, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Remember the um, the Greek translation there says something about about the opening of the eyes to those who are blind, and that's the way Matthew quoted it earlier in our in our gospel. Verse two says to proclaim the year. Of the Lord's favor. But notice there, the Spirit of the Lord is upon this Messiah, upon this servant. The Lord has anointed him. The Lord has put his Spirit upon him. And the purpose of that is to bring good news to the poor. And he sent him then to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim this liberty, this, this Son of God by the, the Spirit coming on him. He has a mission to help the weak and the poor, to help and heal those who need it. And so Christ was anointed by the Spirit, and, and Messiah means the anointed one. And he was anointed by the Spirit to do all of those things, to preach the good news, to heal the sick, to free those who were captive to sin, to open blind eyes. And in our verse, he said to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Notice, even in this, in Isaiah 61-1, to proclaim liberty to the captives. It's not just a, a message of liberty, but it's actually setting free the captives. And in the same way in our text, to proclaim justice to the Gentiles means that he is going to bring about justice. He's going to bring about what is right among the Gentiles. Jesus is going to proclaim what is right to the nations, which is really another way, again, to say that he's going to bring about right. And that's really the message of salvation, that Jesus is going to transform people's lives, that he's going to turn people from sin to God, and they're going to come to Jesus And this message will not go only to the Jews, but it will also go to the Gentiles. It will go to the nations. Now that perhaps reminds us of another text in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. says this, Now the Lord says, Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. So the servant is speaking here again. And the, the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And then verse 6, he says, so the Lord says, and here's what the Lord says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so Jesus is going to be a savior of the whole world. It's too small for him just to save Israel. He needs to save the nations as well. His salvation, the salvation of the Lord needs to go through Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so he will be the savior, not of every person in the world, but of every person who will be saved. They will be saved through Jesus Christ, Yahweh's servant. That is Jesus's mission, is to reach the chosen people from across the world. And so he is a light to the nations. And we, as his disciples, are to go to every nation and make disciples and teach them to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why verse 21 of our text says, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope because his mission extends to the Gentiles as well. And so this gospel that brings salvation is really for the entire world. And that's Jesus's mission. His work is for that goal to save sinners across the world. And he's going to abolish evil by being a light to the nations. And then the third characteristic of Christ that we see in this text In verses 19 and 20, if you're back there, verse 19 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory.
Now here's where we really begin to see how this prophecy connects to verses 15 to 17. Jesus' withdrawal really fulfills Isaiah 42 and verse 2. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Again, Jesus could have easily overpowered the Pharisees. He could have stayed around and quarreled with them and he would have won. But instead he withdrew. He didn't cry aloud. He didn't start a a shouting match. He didn't scream. He didn't brawl. He went to another village. Now it's not here that no one ever heard his voice in the street. He did proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The idea here is he didn't make a scene. He didn't make a fight. And even to the end, our Lord was meek and lowly. And that's the idea here of what this is saying in verse 19. He was meek and lowly. First Peter 1.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now verse 20 provides a, a great picture of Jesus' humility and gentleness. Again, he's not a fighter, he's gentle, he's caring. Verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And these images create a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they describe him. And so what do they mean? What are they, what are they talking about here? Well, let's look at the picture. A reed was tall grass that, that grew abundantly around Israel and, and often in, in marshy areas and other places. And apparently the, the ones there in Israel got kind of semi-hard and they were used for maybe a pen or for um, even maybe sometimes carved into little flutes so that people could play the flute with them to kind of play a little bit of music through them. But these reeds, even though there was some kind of rigidity to them, they were really fragile at best and, and really they weren't worth much. They just kind of grew all over the wilderness. And if one was bruised or broken, it would just be tossed aside and you could easily just grab a new one. A smoldering wick refers to a, a flax or a, a linen wick in a lamp. Uh, maybe think of a, a little piece of wick in a candle. And this little wick, if it didn't burn right, it would smolder. And a smoldering wick, a smoldering lamp doesn't really give much light. And smoke starts to fill the room. And so there's there's really no point of, of, of keeping that wick around. You would just toss it aside and, and put a new wick in your lamp. Or you would get another candle with a good wick. And so both of these pictures describe the discarding of something that's, that's really not working well, something that's, that's kind of useless. And so Jesus will not discard what would normally be discarded and regarded as useless. At least he won't do that until, verse 20, he brings justice to victory. Now, of course, this isn't meant literally. It's not that Jesus is talking about reeds and wicks, and it's really talking about people here. And it's talking about people then who are broken and people whose light is only smoldering, just hardly burning. Now, as we think about applying this, I, I think this is a place where we need to be careful of getting maybe overly imaginative and, and, and kind of getting into fanciful interpretations. And to kind of balance this out a little bit, I want to go to Psalm chapter 2. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm about the Messiah. Because we see here that there is going to be a day where the Lord is going to break some things. And so we want to just kind of balance this out. Psalm 2, look at verse 8. The Lord says to the Messiah, ask of me, And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so one day there will be a breaking of the nations. One day there's going to be a judgment by the sun. And the rest of Psalm 2 says, look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. This son who's going to break the nations with a rod of iron. Kiss this son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled 
And then the good news, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's this warning, take refuge in the son, lest you face his rod of iron. But in our text, it says Jesus is not going to break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick. And so when Jesus returns, he's going to break his enemies and all who have not taken refuge in him, he will send them to hell. Jesus Christ himself will be the judge who sends people to hell in the end. But until that end, until that day when he comes and and breaks the nations with a rod of iron, until he comes and establishes righteousness in the earth and retakes this world to establish his kingdom, until that day, he will break nothing and extinguish no one. Until that day, he is willing to save the most useless and broken person, the weakest and the most helpless. And that's the sense of our text here. You see, to make something useful from a bruised reed would really require the utmost of patience and the almost really a supernatural ability. This, this reed is useless, but Jesus is going to save it. He's going to keep it. He's going to make it into something great. And so we get this picture here of Jesus Christ. He is meek and humble. He is patient. He is kind. And he specializes in saving the broken and the otherwise useless people of the world. And when we think about this, I I, really, as I was preparing this, I just think about myself. I was useless. I was despicable. I was good for nothing. But Jesus saved me. You know, Jesus, when I think about it, he should have thrown me out. He should have cast me to hell. I deserve to go to hell. But Jesus, instead of casting me out, instead of throwing me aside as useless and worthless and and really bringing no glory to God, instead, he changed my life. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He changes people's lives. That's who he is, according to this text. This is very much like what we saw in Matthew chapter 9 when he saw the crowds. Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this is very much like we saw Jesus say in Matthew 11 where he says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But here's what's necessary for this. You must recognize your own worthlessness and your own inability. You must identify as a bruised reed. You know, if you think you're a mighty oak, then you're not going to come to Jesus Christ. If you think you're a bonfire, then you're not going to see your need of Jesus Christ. We are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, each and every one of us. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their poverty. And only when we recognize our need do we see that Christ exactly fits our need, the one who will not break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick. Now, when we think about this again, a bruised reed is always going to wonder if they're bruised enough, right? You know, any bruised reeds, they're just, I'm I'm not bruised enough. There's a little bit hard in me or whatever. Or a smoldering wick is never going to think that, that they're smoldering enough. They're going to wonder really is there, that there's no fire at all, right? That's exactly what they do. There's no fire at all. And what I would say to you, if that's you, if you're saying I'm not bruised enough or there's no fire at all in me, don't trouble yourself with those things. If you are willing to come to Christ, If you are willing to come to him on his terms, what this text is saying is that he will receive you. You see, none of us are ever broken enough. None of us are ever poor enough. None of us are ever anything enough. And that's why we need Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so I would encourage you to look to Christ who is humble and gentle and who is sent by the Father. His very mission is to save sinners. And if you come to him, he will take you to himself. He will receive all who come to him and he will turn you from something useless into an instrument of praise to the glory of the Father. His mission again is to save sinners. His method is gentle and full of grace. And now the fourth characteristic of Christ is, let's see the salvation of Christ. It says in verse 20, until, and I'm, I'm over here in Mark somehow, Matthew chapter 12, verse the end of verse 20 and 21, 
until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And we see the salvation of Christ here. And, and really, I don't have a lot to say here. Jesus is going to continue this way until he accomplishes all of God's purposes, until all the nations of the earth are blessed through him, until the Gentiles hope in him. And the Gentiles, notice it says, will hope in him. This is a really a word of promise that shows us God's sovereignty and salvation. It's not that they might hope in him. It's not that they're going to have an opportunity to hope in him. No, they will hope in him. They will hope in Christ. And some of us know that hope because we have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the name of Christ, which means that our hope is really in all of who Jesus Christ is. He is great. As we saw already today, he is great. He is beloved by the Father. He is merciful. He has a mission of redemption to the nations. He is gentle and humble. He is a great Savior. And if you know him, then again, I just encourage you to behold him once again. The very image of the Father, the the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is our delight. That is our joy. He is our hope. And if you haven't come to Christ, I I would invite you today, if you're here and you're like, "I, I haven't come to this Jesus, I haven't trusted in him for salvation, then I would say, come to him today, turn from your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. He is a great and awesome Savior. And so behold Yahweh's servant, whether you're saved or unsaved, today is a day to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we Thank you for this text. We thank you for revealing Christ to us. We thank you for your delight in him, Father, and we pray that we ourselves, that all of us here would delight in Christ, even the way that you delight in him, Father, that he would be our treasure, our joy, really our all in all. Because, Father, we know that when we behold Christ, we behold you, that he is you on display for us. And so we thank you for sending Christ and for all of who he is, and all of what he's done for us. And we're going to sing now, Father, hallelujah. All I have is Christ. We thank you for the salvation that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.